whew, my heart's racing. That means either the creator's going to take over or I had way too much coffee. So I'm not really sure. Um, thanks for having me here in Hobbs. Uh, David, thanks for tracking me down. I, okay. Uh, usually I'm the one who has to bring the microphone down. You know, they have them up here or something. Um, anyway, um, I'm going to tell you the truth. We're just going to kind of BS for a little while, and we're going to see if the creator takes over. Um, a lot of people back in Denver were saying things like, well, have you been thinking about your talk and what you're going to say? And I said, no. And uh, then somebody else would ask me, and I'd say, no. And then I'd start getting nervous, because I've done this before, and I thought, maybe I'm supposed to be thinking about my talk. But you see, I don't think about my talk. Uh, I get up here, and one of my big fears is that uh, the creator won't come on, and I'll have to say, well, let's all go home now. And... Uh, well, this is a job you're no longer going to be performing. And uh, so we'll just kind of hang out here and visit a little while. I want to thank Trish and Roger for a great trip yesterday from the airport with uh, Keith and Sue. And they said, are you hungry? And all three of us went, yes. And all I could think of was like bleeding beef. I wanted a steak so bad. I like a medium rare. And so when we had a steak, I was thrilled to death. I kept saying, well, I just need protein. Um, so thank you. You were a good host yesterday, and I want to thank Marie, who's a delight. And actually, one of the things I asked, well, she said to me, I said, what's the weather like? And she said, well, you know, a cold front came through. And I'm thinking, I, you know, I live in Denver. <laughs> and she said it could be here a couple of days, so bring a little of everything. Well, you know what a cold front in Denver's like? I mean, we had snow in the mountains. So I wore a sweatshirt on the plane and thought I was having a hot flash sitting in this room last night. And I'm looking around at everybody's shorts and T-shirts, and I'm thinking, you know, I should have asked, him what, asked her what cold meant, you know, what a cold front in Hobbs is. And I'm a woman who was raised in El Paso, okay, so I should remember this. Um, I have friends here, believe it or not. I actually have some friends, uh, <laughs> Libby, Kate, Tom, Juanita. And uh, so nice to have people come over to see you and say hi. Uh, can you tell how nervous I am? I can't believe this. I'm usually not too nervous. Um, I haven't given a talk in a while, and a lot's happened. My sponsor talks to me about it. I remember once I was getting ready to go give a talk, and I called him, and I said, what should I tell him? And he said, well, honey, for a change, why don't you try the truth? <laughs> you know? And um, do I have an hour? 45 minutes? 75. 75. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> and the, the scary thing about when I give a talk is if, I feel like there's more to say and time's running short. I talk faster. So hold on to your seats. It's pretty scary. Um, Carl, you were a delight last night. And I'm sorry I wasn't laughing. I was so tired. I was brain fried, you know. And, and, uh, but there was a lot of funny stuff. Makes me a little nervous about who's running our submarines, though. Uh, you know, you hear people get up here about their professions or where they've been, and you're thinking, really? And you were my pilot? You know? <laughs> And you go, oh, it's like the pilot that got off the plane yesterday. We've had a lot of those lately, so I'm kind of glad they took them off. Um, anyway, my home group is the Happy Way Group in Denver, Colorado. I'm an active member there and have been for seven years. My birthday, my sobriety birthday is May 3rd of 1981. Um, when you're in Denver, a couple things you have to do. One is go to York Street, which is the York Street Club. If you haven't been there, anybody been to York Street? It's pretty neat, isn't it? It's a lovely place, got a great history. And the other thing is come see us at Happy Way. 
I'm going to warn some people right up front that I'm a big book thumping kind of gal, and I'm an active step worker and sponsor. And the reason I like to tell people that up front is because some people don't want to hear about that. And that's okay with me. It used to not be okay with me. I would chain you in your seat till you got it. But today, I understand there's some people that don't need it, and number two, some other people who aren't interested. So I like to just warn you right up front uh, what's going to happen up here. Uh, are there any Al-Anons in the audience? Raise them high. It's okay. There we go. Good. Delight. Welcome. I'm hoping in my talk you hear something of alcoholism. If you're new in Al-Anon and not sure about alcoholism, I'm hoping there's something that I say that can help you understand this malady, this disease that I have and some other people in this room have. But before I do that, I have to tell the famous Al-Anon joke I have, okay? Sorry. Got to do it. I do it all over the country. Do you know how many Al-Anons it takes to screw in a light bulb? You can't answer. <laughs> do you know? No? None. They just detach and let it screw itself. For any alcoholics that don't understand that joke, you can check with, you know, a high-powered Al-Anon after this meeting, and they'll explain it to you. Uh, out of curiosity, okay, not to single people out, but for me, how many people have a year or less of sobriety in this room? Great. Super. Wonderful. Okay, I usually introduce myself and say, you know, I'm Janice Del Campo, and I'm a real alcoholic. And uh, the reason that I talk about that is because there's some people in AA that aren't necessarily alcoholic, and I know that will make people uncomfortable. But I'm really lucky because I'm a person who found out what was wrong with me. And the good news about that means that I have a first step. And because I have a first step, when I take these steps, the 12 steps as they're designed and outlined in the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous, I am promised the spiritual experience and uh, the psychic change. And I've had that. But the reason I believe that I've had that is it all begins with the first step. If I don't have a first step, nothing else is going to be happening. So I, I talk, I can talk for an hour on the first step. My, my group at home gets kind of sick at me. I chaired a meeting the other night, though, on um, practicing these principles in all our affairs, and they, sighed a, they, they did a sigh of relief because it wasn't on the first step. I even have a T-shirt that says... It all begins with the first step, and it has this child in, like, the hand of God, you know. So I wear my T-shirt when I'm ready to cheer a meeting, and so they know what's going on. And the reason I do that is not that all the steps aren't important, but the first step is our foundation. Without a first step, there's no need to even take a second step. If I don't know what I'm powerless over, why would I need to find a power greater than myself to solve my problem? The thing you may hear up here, and I'm not sure what it's going to be, but it's some talk about God. And I call him the creator today. And the reason is that this program promises me a relationship with a higher power that's going to solve my problem. Because I believe, and this is my experience today, and I hope it's yours, the only thing that stands between me and the thought of the next drink is my God. And Alcoholics Anonymous allowed me to access that God through the 12 steps. I do not believe that the steps keep me sober. I do not believe that meetings keep me sober. I don't believe that reading books keeps me sober. What keeps me sober is my relationship with God, and all those things allow me to have that relationship. And that's just a fact. And I used to be worried about talking to people about God, you know, because I would explain to them I was in the program and there were these things you had to do, and then I'd go, and then there's God. Because you didn't want to scare them away, right? Because I didn't want them thinking, oh, no, this is a religion. And today, I let them know right up front, here's the deal. This is a spiritual way of life. You hear people say the spiritual part of the program, you know, 
They do. I mean, we do say that. I don't know where it comes from, but we're like, well, you know, the spiritual part. I'm working on the spiritual part. Well, I need to explain something. There is no spiritual part. There are no party pieces here. There's a spiritual way of life that I've been introduced to, and I no longer suffer from active alcoholism. I believe in being a recovered alcoholic today. And people are, oh, my God, a recovered alcoholic, how can you be? Well, the book tells me I get to be recovered. And the first time I talked to my sponsor, when he took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that was one of the first things we talked about in the forward to the first edition was about being recovered, how we have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show you how precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So it tells me I'm going to be recovered. And I thought my sponsor was being arrogant, you know. And said, what do you think about that? And I said, well, I don't think I understand it. I mean, how do you know you're recovered? And he said, well, because I am. And I said, well, am I recovered? He said, I don't know. I said, well, how do I get recovered? He said, by doing what's prescribed. And I said, well, then will I be recovered? He said, I don't know. I said, well, how will I know when I'm recovered? When you are. (laughs) Don't you love sponsors? You heard me say he, didn't you? Nobody fell out of their chair. I have a male sponsor. I've had the same sponsor for 16 years. And the good news was I was not looking for a honey when I went to him. Okay, I'm good friends with his wife and his family. And that happens to be who my spiritual advisor is. So if you have a problem with that, it's okay. And I can't help you with your problem with that, but please don't let it diminish a message that you may need to hear. See, we want to look for stuff that separates us out from getting better sometimes, especially if we're not committed to what's going on here or if we're not surrendered. We want to hear other stuff. Should I qualify as an alcoholic? Would you like that? Now how I got here? I had my first drink when I was 15, and I'm like, Carl, I was an alcoholic the first time I drank. There wasn't a doubt in my mind, but I just didn't know what alcoholism was. I was raised in an alcoholic family. My mother died of active alcoholism and drug addiction when she was 47 years old. Dropped dead on the living room floor. Very sad thing. Beautiful lady. Been talking about her a lot lately. Now I know why. Um, Just recently was the anniversary of her death. And um, it didn't have to be like that. But we didn't talk about Alcoholics Anonymous back in 1969. I have now lived longer than my mom. I'm 51. um, But anyway, I was raised in an alcoholic home, but we called it entertaining. Right? Which we were, <laughs> to the whole city. But <laughs> we were very entertaining. But uh, we had big parties. It was a time when, you know, it was a lot of, you know, holidays. I mean, every day was a day for celebration. But, I mean, there was just a lot of drinking that went on. And we thought that, or I thought that's just what people did. And um, anyway, so uh, I had my first drink at 15. And I want you to come with me. I talk about this probably at every talk. But I want you to come with me down memory lane. And I want you to go into your experience And if this sounds similar to you, maybe not the circumstances or the location where it happened to me, but my physical experience like Carl was talking about last night, if that sounds similar, and if you've had that experience, you may be an alcoholic like me. And if you have that disease, which is what we need to find out, and I need to know that for myself, then there is a clear-cut solution here. I can remember that drink like it happened yesterday. I remember where I was sitting, I remember what I was wearing, and I remember what I was doing. And I want you to know I had on the ugliest dress God ever made. And it was at my sister's wedding. And we were at the dinner plate, the place where we were going to have dinner. My brother came out, uh, walked up. I, I can see the table, the little wire back chairs. And uh, sitting there with his girlfriend, he had gone to the bar and he came back with drinks in his hand. And he handed me a drink in one of those, you know, those little highball glasses. And it was kind of a murky looking drink. And he handed it to me. 
And I took the drink and I went, you know, up. And I drank it. And when it hit about here, I remember going, whoa, yes. And all of a sudden I was taller. <laughs> and I think I had bigger breasts. <laughs> and I was charming. And I was very funny. And I did what any good budding alcoholic does after I drank that drink. What did I do? Ordered another one. There's another alcoholic in the room. Okay. So, see, we're getting it. Doesn't take long. APC. I talk about getting out the big chief pad and Crayolas because it's pretty simple. So I ordered another drink. Now, my family should have understood right from the beginning that we were going to have big problems with my behavior when I drank. Because I tried to pick up the priest who had married my brother, my sister, and her new husband. He was the cutest little Irish priest from Ireland, and I found myself singing Irish love songs to him in his ear, okay? Right then, they should have locked me up. Little did we know the path that lay ahead. You know, that was ready to go. Y'all know El Paso? See, I get to say y'all here, and people don't look at me funny. Um, on the border with Juarez, so I did a lot of drinking with Juarez. It was great. When I was drinking, it's 35 cents a mixed drink. A $5 bill got you a long way. Once I started drinking... There was no stopping. I was there on weekends, and I was there with friends. And each high school had its bar. You know, some people went to Fred's, and some people went here, and they ate those avocado sandwiches or whatever. I never understood that. You know, I went into a couple of those places sober once, and I couldn't believe I drank there, so I had to drink to be able to drink there. And uh, it was pretty frightening during the day. Um, but I would sit at the bar and drink. And I always thought I was being a lady because I'd order those daiquiris, you know, and uh, screwdrivers, and I remember one night I came home, and I was uh, pretty drunk, I was pretty sick, and I was throwing up in the bathroom, my parents were asleep, and my mom got up, and, and uh, she said, you've been drinking, I said, yes ma'am, I have, and so the next day she talked to me, and she said, you know, Janice, the reason you're getting, what are you drinking, I said, well, you know, bourbon and seven, daiquiris, things like that, and she said, well, sweetie, you can't be drinking that stuff with the sweet stuff in it, because it'll make you really sick, and she said, you need to start drinking scotch, <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, okay, that sounds like a good idea. So I drank scotch until I got into this program at the age of 30. Now, quick story, so that you understand, a lot of us come from dysfunctional backgrounds, don't we? But you see, dysfunctional backgrounds don't make us drunks. You see, the reason my family was the way it was is not the reason I'm an alcoholic. I have that gene or that thing in me or that switch that when I get alcohol in my body, I want more alcohol. And then when I get up in the morning and swear I'm never going to do it again, I do it again. I had a brother that was killed in a car wreck when I was about 11 years old. My dad was a pediatrician. I was raised in what was considered a good home. Looked really good on the outside. And it was a nightmare on the inside. A lot of us in this room were raised in war zones. But in the same respect, a lot of us were, weren't raised to do the things that we did. And that's a fact. The things I did behind alcohol. You can talk about how terrible my parents were and all this, but I wasn't raised to behave the way I ended up behaving. Alcohol takes us places that we never imagined that we would go. So anyway, my brother's killed in a car wreck. My dad is a pediatrician. His best friend was a psychiatrist. <laughs> there any psychiatrists in the room, I love you a lot. And I, I got to tell the story. So <laughs> I had to make amends to mine. Um, anyway, in order for us to deal with our emotional problems over the death of my brother, we weren't very well grounded. I was raised Catholic. And I thought I was a really good Catholic. I was the kind that went to Mass every day during Lent. I did the deal. I went to Loretto Academy, the whole bit. <clears throat> and you still can't read my handwriting. But um, um, what they did was they put some of us on medication. And at the age of 11 or 12, I was on Elevil, Stelazine, and Dalmain. Any of you that know about heavy medication. And so uh, 
because I was a high-strung kind of kid. <laughs> so, and I needed to sleep at night because I was having nightmares. And they put my mom on second alls. Anybody know about barbiturates and drinking? It's not a pretty sight. And she wasn't very happy, and she would take a lot of those second alls every once in a while, and the ambulance would have to come, and we'd pump her stomach and do the deal. And she lived a tragic life. And the night that she died, I was actually relieved. You know, I was happy for her that she was done and she had transcended. She had, like, uh, shot right out of this existence to wherever it is that she needed to go. And that was my first reaction, was relief. And um, that's the kind of house I was raised in. You never knew what you were coming home to. You know, violent father, we have abuse, we have all that stuff. But guess what? That doesn't make me an alcoholic. People talk about their childhood or because of a relationship. <coughs> that's why they drink. They're an alcoholic. No, mm-mm. I'm going to draw a little thing that helped me figure it out, and I do this in workshops, is let's say that the girl next door to me had the same kind of upbringing. There was abuse and alcoholism and drug abuse and all that kind of stuff going on in the household and violence and all that. So we both have it going on, same age, same everything. She and I go out into the world. She takes a drink of alcohol and says, I don't like how it makes me feel. I take a drink of alcohol, and I say, give me another. So my past... And my personal experiences are not what make me an alcoholic. Now, did I find relief and aid and comfort from that? Absolutely. But when I took my first drink, I didn't even know how uncomfortable I was until I took the drink and got comfortable. I didn't know that I was uncomfortable. But the truth was, after a period of time, I just drank. You know, people, you know we say, oh, I drank because of this relationship. I drank because it was... I just drank. I loved drinking. And I figured that I was going to drop dead drunk like my mother did. This is not a story about a woman who tried to quit a lot. I didn't. It never occurred to me to quit a lot. I just thought I would drop dead one day from alcohol, from drinking alcohol. I drank consistently and I got a little bit into drugs. And you know what, Carl, I need to tell you something. I'm an apologist. I'm an apologist when I talk about drugs. I realize that. I always learn something. I learn something from everybody I hear, anybody I sponsor, any fist step I listen to, any speaker. And when he said that last night, I thought, you know what, I'm an apologist about talking about drugs. And the reason I think that I do, and I'm gonna, I've been thinking about it since last night, what that's about, but I will say this for me, is that when I talk about drugs, is, and I say, you know, I've got to do this because it's part of it, I still believe that there are people in AA who didn't do drugs, and they don't know what, that, what I'm talking about. They don't understand that experience. You know, but I'm going to play about that situation and help me think about some things. Anyway, I got involved with drugs about the age of 18 when my mom died. So my brother died as 11. My mom died when I was 18. I was working at a radio station. I had a hangover, came into work. A disc jockey came up to me, and he said to me, Boy, you look terrible. I said, I feel terrible. He said, I've got this little capsule here that will make you feel better, right? You're nodding your head. You're my kind of guy, right there. He nodded his head. He knew before I ever got to the punchline what we're doing. And so I take that capsule, and I, you know, drink it down. And in about 40 minutes, 30 minutes, I don't remember how long it was, I had another spiritual experience. <laughs> I had a spiritual experience like I had with my first drink. You want to know why? It altered my consciousness. It altered where I was at at that precise moment, just like that. And I had my first amphetamine. We, of course, like to call them diet pills back then. Because uh, I think drug addicts did speed. And uh, so we did diet pills. And so what happened with that was that the hangover was gone instantly gone and I loved it I could function my head was clear I could do my job life was good so I had found a solution to all this drinking that was giving me a hangover and uh, as much as I wanted to drink I'm not very big and uh, I loved drinking 
And you're not going to hear a lot of horror stories here either because you know what? It talks about good times and conviviality and all that fun we had. We really did have a good time for a period of time. I did. You know, and later on it changed. But I found amphetamines and what that allowed me to do was drink more alcohol. And that psychiatrist that I like so well, he used to give me things like Valium, you know, because I was so high strung. You know, and I would go to him and say things like, you know, I just, I'm so high strung, I'm so wild, I'm this, I'm that, you know. And I, so I had an open prescription and those were the days that everybody took Valium. Remember, everybody had it in their pockets. So I could get 100 Valium anytime I wanted. And I'd love to go to the bars and just drink and drink and drink and drink. So this is what happened. For 10 years, I'd get up in the morning with a hangover. I'd take one of my amphetamines, one of my diet pills. Come to, get ready for work. I'd get to work. Always had great jobs. I'd work very hard and very fast. Okay? <laughs> the only problem with that was the next day I couldn't remember what I'd done or where I'd put it. But everything was clean. But I'd work hard, 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 hard. Okay? And then at come 5 o'clock, the girls say, let's go over to the King's X. Oh, did I love the King's X. Let's go to the King's X for a happy hour. I'm like, that's a heck of an idea. So we'd go over to the King's X. We're going to shoot a little pool, hang out. I'd start drinking, doing that happy hour thing. Phenomenon of craving would kick in, and I'd want to be drinking more alcohol. Some of those people went home, but my real drinking buddies stayed. About 8 o'clock, I'm coming down from my amphetamine. So I think, well, the night's young, so you got to take a little more. Right? Keep drinking, keep drinking, keep drinking. The bar's getting ready to close, and i got to go to bed, and I'm higher than a kite. So i got to go to sleep. So you got to take a little valley and take the edge off so you can go to sleep. And then you get up in the morning, take a hit of speed, you go to work, you work, 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 and you go drink. And that's how I lived my life for 10 years. Now, what do I have? No teeth. If there's any speed freaks in the room, no teeth. I used to go to the dentist. He couldn't understand why I had all these cavities and why my mouth kept rotten, you know, because we were doing all this stuff. And he's like, I don't understand. I don't understand. And I said, me either. And uh, so one day he's talking to me and he's going, Janice, something is terribly wrong here. And I said, well, I do need to tell you something, Dr. B. I do a few diet pills. Boy, he looked at me and he said, Janice, I need to tell you something. It's either your diet pills or it's your teeth, and you're going to need to make a choice. Almost sounds like a second step, doesn't it? Because you know what I said? Well, let me think about it. <laughs> like to think about your second step? I'll think about my teeth. So I went home and I thought about it. Cute, conniving, clever little alcoholic that I am. I said, well, hell, I'll just take calcium supplements. So that's what I did. I took calcium supplements all the way through my speeding. Uh, you know, I didn't care if my teeth fell out. So that's how I drink. I've qualified. I don't want to talk too much about what it used to be like. Because the truth is, if you drank the way I drank and we continue to talk, you're going to know who you are. I came here through another fellowship. I came here through another fellowship because I thought I was a drug addict. And I liked what that fellowship talked about. And I don't know if, if those of you have never been to York Street, when I walked into York Street, they had, when you walked in, it was kind of dark and they had all these chairs that lined the walls in the main hallway there. And there were these really old Guys sitting there smoking and looking, I don't know, just not my kind of guys. They called it DPR, Dead Pecker Road. You had to walk through DPR to get to a meeting. And I remember walking in there thinking, oh my God, I'm an ex-ballerina and doctor's daughter. I don't belong here. Look at these weirdos. So I found another fellowship that accepted me and I thought I was an addict. 
And I went there for a long time. And we didn't have any other literature, literature at the time other than the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I got a sponsor and I went through the steps. I'm going to tell you this right now. I'm a very sick alcoholic. I'm one of those who's sicker than others. As you hear my story, you will agree. And um, I didn't come to until I had almost five years. I don't remember my first birthday. I don't remember my second or my third. I was kind of in a blackout. I was a very, very sick girl. So if you aren't, like, getting it right away, not to worry. It takes a while. No, seriously. It takes a while for the body to heal. But I continued to do, I did service work right from the beginning, and I went through the steps, and I just don't remember a whole lot about that experience except that I know that I did it. I stayed in that fellowship, and then one day I worked out a big book, but I'm in this other fellowship, and I heard a speaker one day talking about AA. And... Uh, I felt conflicted. I went, it was a AA convention and talking about their service and the steps. And I realized that I was hanging out doing my service work in this fellowship, but my, my sobriety and my clean time had come out of this other fellowship. And I had about five years of sobriety at the time, and I wasn't feeling very good. Any of you ever hit a point where you just didn't feel very good here? Skin not fitting, thinking, mm, something isn't right. And um, I wasn't quite sure what to do about it, but I, I realized I was conflicted. And... Um, I went to go hear this guy speak one night, and I didn't know him, and uh, it was an AA talk. And when he spoke, I just heard glad tidings. I heard a message of hope. I heard clarity in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous that I didn't know about. I heard about a clear and precise solution with clear and precise instructions and a guarantee of certain outcomes if I did certain stuff. And I was mesmerized. I couldn't believe it. And I knew that I'd heard the message of recovery for me. So I tracked this person down who happened to be my sponsor today. And I, at first I would call him and say, look, I'm sponsoring people. You don't know me. I know you. And I have sponsees who are asking me questions, and I'm not sure what to say to them. Can I call you periodically and you can help me? Yes. He always says yes. And uh, so I would call and say, listen, somebody asked me this. What would you say if they asked you that? And he would give me a really good response. And I would go, hey, that's great. Thank you. And I'd hang up the phone, and I would tell that sponsee that. And I'd call him another day and do the same thing. Somebody asked me this, and I didn't know what to tell him, and he'd give a response. And I'd go, thanks, click. Well, I was getting it in this process that I didn't know what to say to people. I was a lousy sponsor. Have you ever felt like a lousy sponsor? You can't transmit something you haven't got. Can't give a precise solution if you haven't received a precise solution. Sponsorship is so critical in that it's that stuff about, uh, Carl, you spoke about it last night, about uh, an alcoholic properly armed with facts about himself can win over the confidence of another alcoholic when nobody else can. Well, what does that mean? They know what the problem is and they know what the solution is. They know how they drank, what makes them an alcoholic, and what the solution is out of that. Well, that's what I heard that night. That was that message I heard. So I called this person. I said, you know, uh, I asked him a question again, and he said, well, I would do with them what I do with any newcomer. I had five years. He said, and I said, well, what do you do with newcomers? He said, I sit down with them with that book, and we start on the very first page, and we read that book together and do exactly and precisely what that book asks us to do. We do it together. I went, hmm. Hardest question I ever asked in my entire life. Will you do that with me? said, okay, but if you have a female sponsor. He'd never met me. He didn't know what I was coming after, right? Met me. He understood that I, was, uh, that I had the gift of desperation. And I hope each and every one of you that's a real alcoholic in this room today has the gift of desperation. And what the gift of desperation is, is I will go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. 
that I will do whatever it takes to not take another drink of alcohol, and I had that gift. I may not have gotten other stuff in those first five years, but I always had that. And so I said, what do we have to do? He said, we're going to meet on every Wednesday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You'll be at my place. And just because of how this person carried themselves and conducted themselves and spoke, I knew that 10 after 3 was not okay. All right? They never, he never even said, if you come at 10 after 3, it's not okay, or if you miss, it's not okay. I knew by the conduct of this person that their time was valuable and what they were doing with me was valuable, and I also valued the, the chance to have an experience. The first issue on the table was, am I an alcoholic or am I a drug addict? And he kindly looked at me and said, I don't have a clue, but why don't we read in the book today? And we'd read in the book, and we talk about being recovered, and we get in the doctor's opinion, and we start talking about the phenomenon of craving, that little thing that kicks off in me when I start drinking, and for some people it's the first drink, for some people it's the third. That is purely semantics. I don't care. But if you have that, you very possibly suffer from my disease. Kicks in, I want more alcohol. How many times did I say, honey, I'll be home at 7? Honey, I'll be home at 7. Did you ever say that? Yeah, I'll be home for dinner because I think I'm supposed to cook. <laughs> yeah, we may have company coming, but honey, I'll be home at 7. And I couldn't get home at 7. Not because I didn't intend to get there, not because I didn't mean to be there, not because I hadn't bought the groceries, not because I didn't care, but because I started drinking. And when I start drinking, all I want to do is drink. So we talked about the phenomenon of craving in the doctor's opinion where, you know, they've been talking about our new book. And um, in the first edition, I don't know if any of you have ever seen a first edition, but the doctor's opinion used to be page one. So it used to be like the first 172 pages or something or whatever that is. Because even though it's got those goofy little Roman numerals at the bottom, it's a very important chapter because it describes and defines my malady. So it talks about the phenomenon of craving. We'd read and he'd share his experiences drinking and all that kind of stuff and we started connecting. At the end of a session, I'd say, well, what do you think? Am I an alcoholic or an addict? I don't know. So then we talk about, we come back, he said, you'll have to pray about it and come back next week. We talk about that mental obsession, about that sense of ease and comfort that comes with taking just a few drinks. Drinks that we see other people taking with impunity, which means with no consequences. And it says people drink essentially for the effect. Not alcoholics, everybody likes the effect. Except alcoholics like me really like the effect. <laughs> a lot. And I come back the next week. Am I an alcoholic or an addict? This probably went on for three, four weeks. And he kept saying, I don't know, I don't know. Pray about it, pray about it, pray about it. Well, guess what? I prayed about it. And you want to know what I found out? You want to know what God told me? I am an alcoholic. And I am an alcoholic who does drugs to enhance my alcohol experience. Okay? I did speed so that I could drink more alcohol. I did speed so I could be the designated driver. <laughs> Which I was. See, I was always clear and drunk. <laughs> and I took Valium because I needed to go to bed. But through the process of going through this book, I got it. He didn't tell me. Nobody else told me. Nobody designated me in anything. God revealed it to me by the way I drink. Now, I'm not the kind of... I had to get honest about it. I'm not the kind of gal that's going to do a handful of speed... And hang out without a bottle of Johnny Walker right around. Okay, I'm not going to do it. 
I mean, that would be terrifying. Could you imagine me on speed? It's pretty scary, isn't it? <laughs> so you've got to have the Johnny Walker Red, because that's why I'm doing speed, so I can drink more. My honey back in Denver. I loved country western bars in El Paso, and I loved everything that was in them, you know, like the cowboys. And my honey back in Denver says, now you behave yourself, young lady. <laughs> I know what part of the country you're going to. I love to shoot pool and raise hell and dance, and I just I loved everything about it. But I just couldn't stop. I couldn't stop or moderate. And I never really thought about that until I got sober, but the truth was I just went with it. And I know there's a lot of people that try and quit. I wasn't one of them. So he and I start marching through this book. There's a lot of neat stuff in that book. But you know what? It never sounded the same until I sat down with him and read it. He'd read stuff in the book that I'd read before, and I thought, did we get a new book? <laughs> you know? I didn't see that before. And so there's something about sharing this. One alcoholic helping another. Conventions are great, and conferences are great, and workshops are great. Potlucks are great. All that stuff is great. AA happens when we sit down one-on-one -on -one at the kitchen table, and we talk about our disease and our solution. The disease is a common, what our true common bond is here, is a common solution. That's what it is. I mean, we've all suffered. We've survived. It talks about surviving from the shipwreck and all that stuff from, you know, having survived alcoholism. But the thing that holds us together is the common solution that is found in this book. I hear a lot of weird stuff in AA meetings, and it makes me crazy. I've stopped kind of going to other ones for a while because it's like I used to be the captain of the uh, AA police. <laughs> Self-appointed. And I'd sit and listen in meetings to people and I'd think, you are not an alcoholic and you need to get your butt up out of that chair because somebody needs that space. All right? Or I'd confront. And I, I, was, I was a wild one. And I wrote some inventory and I got to see. And, and when I was fist-stepping it with my sponsor, he said, you know, there's a word for this. Behavior. I said, really? <laughs> he said, yeah. He said, it's called arrogance. I said, you know what? I think you're right. <laughs> you know, he's not always right, but he was right on that one. So I'm not the AA police today. But I do believe in us carrying the clear and precise message to each other. And if I don't do that while well, I'm out doing this, then my thing is, who's going to do it? And if you're not doing it, then who's going to do it? So I found out that I'm an alcoholic. Well, guess what? Then I'm suffering from a disease that only a spiritual experience is going to conquer. Okay, it says that this is a suggested program of recovery, doesn't it? Suggested program recovery. You ever worked with somebody and they said, Janice, you can't really tell me what to do here. And I'm going to have to do this because it's all a big, fat suggestion. You know, I love those. They're good. And uh, But what the, how I read that is, is a suggested program of recovery. It says we don't have the corner on the market here. And we don't. And so, I always have these mints in my mouth because my mouth gets dry. And once I swallowed one whole while I was giving a talk, it was really cute. So, but I know that Kate can do the Heimlich maneuver, so I'm covered. Um, they told me that last night because they know my phobias. Um, anyway, so a suggested program of recovery tells me that there may be other programs of recovery, right? This is one suggested program of recovery. So let's play pretend that there's four or five of them. There could be psychiatry may work for some people, and religion, and um, sports, whatever the suggested program is, AA, and I'm sure there's a fifth. Whatever it is. Or maybe there's 28. But AA is one of the suggested programs of recovery. 
That's what it means to me. And then when you get into the book, there's not a suggestion in the book. And if you think there is, you haven't read too closely. Because it says really interesting things in there. Like if uh, we fail to perfect and enlarge our spiritual lives through work and self-sacrifice for others, we won't survive the uh, hard times ahead. It means we're going to drink. An inventory. Let's talk about harboring resentment. It says when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we're sure to drink again. Sex inventory. If we continue to participate in behavior that harms others, our experience tells us we'll drink again. Fifth step. If we don't do this vital step and uncover everything, we're going to drink again. Ninth step. Remember, we said we'd be willing to go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. That's not a suggestion. Words, words like precisely, specifically, in our experience, drink again. So this is how I look at AA. Is that if I'm not doing exactly what's in this book, I'm not doing it. People come to me with these handouts for inventory that they've like created out of their experience because they think they know how it ought to be laid out and what you really ought to be answering versus what the book asks. It's in the book. And I've been doing it that way for years. Now, am I the picture of mental health every day? No. I'm really not. You know, I'm going out with this wonderful man and we were talking about stuff because I was never going to date again. And once you hear my history, you'll know why. And um, I said, you know, I decided if I ever went out again, I'd like to go out with somebody who has fewer neuroses than I have. And he said, well, I think you're home free on that one. <laughs> you know what I mean? So picture perfect health? No. But do I suffer from an active alcoholic mind? No. I don't. So number one, I got to know what my problem is. And here's the other deal. Is I heard somebody speak at a convention who was combining everything, you know, being a drug addict and alcoholic and all that kind of stuff and pulling in and said, hey, look, you know, that singleness of purpose stuff, eventually it's going to go away because a lot of these old timers are going to die. And we can bring in all this other stuff. Set it from the podium. The good news is, like Sue, I didn't go up and choke the life out of her, okay, today. But I prayed for her because the truth is there's a reason why we talk about alcoholism here is because it has specific symptoms it has a specific outcome and it has a specific solution for to be recovered. That's why we do that. I had to know what I was so I knew where I belonged. I don't believe anybody comes to Alcoholics Anonymous by mistake. But not all of them necessarily belong here. So it's my responsibility to be kind and open and to talk with people about what, that, what their problem is. And maybe I can help them get where it is that they need to go. And I, and I know that people get uptight about it and that's fine. You can come see me after I'm done talking. Because you see, finding that out is what saved my life because then I realized that I needed the spiritual solution because lack of power was my dilemma. I had no power over alcohol. And what that means is I have no power to choose. It's like you were discussing drug of choice. It is absolutely ludicrous to me to talk about drug of choice. I have no choice over what I do. I have no choice over alcohol. And I loved cocaine. It's what brought me to my knees. I had no choice there. Drug of choice tells me that you still have power, so you need to go out and be making those choices until you have no choice. When I'm done, when all my choices are gone and all the power is gone, it says in the chapter to we agnostic, lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live, but at precise, how are we going to do that? You know what it says? That is exactly what this book is about. Is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Does that sound like a suggestion? Not to me. 
and it offers a solution. It says this is what you will get. What is insanity in the second step? What is unmanageability? People want to tell me that their insanity is their love life, their checkbook, their this, their that. I'm living an insane life. You know what insanity is to me? Waking up in the morning and thinking the next drink is going to be different. Because it's not. Or saying, I will never drink again. Anybody in this room say, I'll never drink again. I'll never do this to you again, honey. I won't ever behave that way ever again. And I meant it with every fiber of my being. I meant it. And the darndest thing would happen. <laughs> it was so weird. And I'm in it. Boy, I'm stinking a liquor. I've been in a bar. You got that that stranger next to you when you wake up in the morning, but the boots were good looking. And, um, you know, and you're going, I will never do this again. I remember checking out of a motel room, looking out the window going, where am I? I will never do this again. I could have been killed. I don't want to feel like this again. Sound familiar? And then, weird. Four or five hours later, a day later, three days later, my mind changes. And it's as though that incident never happened. It's not even in my consciousness. I cannot bring into my consciousness with sufficient force the suffering of a week, a month, 24 hours, two hours ago. I can't do it. Well, if that is an insanity, what is? My sister-in-law takes a drink and she goes, you know, I'm not sure I like how I feel. What is this? You know, and I'm out doing that stuff all night long. Say I won't do it again. I can't do it. That's lack of power. That's powerlessness. And while I'm drinking, I can't stop. Right in the middle of it, stop abruptly. You know that thing in there about go out and try some controlled drinking? I used to think that that was the cruelest thing in the book. I would say I would never tell somebody to try controlled drinking. And the reason is, what if they died? What, what if they died? And then somebody explained to me, Janice, if people don't know they're alcoholic, they need to. Because, see, they, are, they still have power and choice. Well, you know why I used to be afraid people would die? Is because if I did that little test, I would die. And I figured if you were in AA, you had the exact same disease I did, so I wasn't going to tell you to go try it because I was afraid you'd drink like me. I can't do that test. I can't do controlled drinking. A drink a day for 30 days? My first question is, well, what does a drink mean to you? Is that a drink or a drink? Right? That's an alcoholic mind. So I don't wake up in the morning thinking the next drink's going to be different. I'm not changing liquor. I'm not changing bars. I'm not doing that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying, honey, I won't ever do this again. I don't have an active alcoholic mind. Why is it? Because I've had the psychic change. The second step says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. To me, sanity is I don't have an active alcoholic mind today. Well, where does sanity get returned? Because people want to debate that with me about it. But it's in the book. The book's about alcoholism. So where does it get restored? In the tenth step. In the tenth step, it says, by now, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. We'll recoil from it like from a hot flame. We'll be in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We haven't even sworn off, and it just happened. Well, do you want to know how far it is from two to ten? It's a long way. It's a long way. A lot of work in between there. But I believe, for me, it's the only way. I've gone to my sponsor and complained about people that I think don't have to do what I do here. You ever done that? 
how come Mary Sue gets to do this and Gary gets to do that and I don't get to do this and so and so doesn't have to write an inventory and wah, 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 wah. Why, why, why? Number one, I'm told your question isn't why. Your question is what can I do to serve? Number two, are you a real alcoholic? Yes, sir. Then there is no question. This is what you do. It doesn't matter what other people are doing. So anyway, it tells me I'm going to find this power greater than myself, which restores me to sanity. You see, the first drink isn't the issue. It's the thought. My mind, it doesn't work right. I have to have a new mind. It has to change. It has to function better. I have to have something other than that strange mental twist. And this program, this process, promises me a new mind. I was reading my 11th step this morning. And it was talking about coming to rely upon our thinking. You know, when I first got here with my sponsor, he said, Janice, there's a lot of great signs on the on the wall. You know, live and let live, there but for the grace of God, you know, and all that stuff. He said, but that think, think, think one, he said, honey, that is not for you. Okay? Don't be thinking. And then all of a sudden, in 11 step, it tells me I'm going to be able to trust my thinking. So it tells me I'm going to get a new mind. Well, how does that happen? It happens through this spiritual process. It happens by willing to do the things that are laid out in the book, and I've done that. And I haven't done them perfectly. Right now, I'm fortunate enough to be conducting a workshop, a big book workshop. Everybody's in a fear inventory, and all I've done is make my first column list. You know? And I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I just, it's like, and then the bedevilments, you know, bite you in the kind of... Page 52. And the way my bedevilments show up are in things like, um, well, I call it um, fishy discipline. I have um, fish tanks, and I have one fish that's particularly aggressive. And when he's beating up on the other fish, I get in there with a net and discipline him. <laughs> that's an indicator. I'm disciplining my fish. And uh, my financial stuff looks a little weird and... But I, I live in that. But uh, So I'm telling you, I'm not perfect here. But I've been working steps a lot. I usually go through probably at least once a year. Not because I set a date to go through it, but because I sponsor people, and my sponsors taught me when they go through the steps, I go through the steps. Do I do this because I'm noble? No. Am I particularly grand? No. I'm a real alcoholic, and my life depends on it. And so what it does is it allows me, through that process, so I say, okay, yeah, I'm willing to believe there's a power greater than myself that's going to solve this problem. And... Um, at that point, and then at three, I make a decision to turn my will and life over to that power. Where people come in and say, look, I was raised a Catholic, I'm miserable, I hate God, and all that sort of stuff. The neatest part about the second step is that you don't even have to think about it. I love to sit in meetings with transcended beings who have got it all figured out. All right? My deal is two follows one. All right? And three follows two. And so if I do them in numerical order and trust the process, it works. And I don't have to figure it out. And I don't have to know who God is. And I don't have to do that stuff in order for this to work. And that book assures me that. The other thing it assures me is that when I've gotten through these steps, I will have a relationship with a higher power. I take a third step in faith. I, it, you know what? Who can understand uh, turning your will and life over to the care of God? I mean, what does that mean? That second step. God's either everything or he's nothing. What a horrendous question. You know, what does that mean? If I can't understand that, the important thing is that I take it and that I write inventory and that I share that stuff with, with my sponsor on a regular basis. Six and seven, make amends and, you know, make your list in eight and make amends. And the reason I'm walking through it this way is I want to talk to you a little bit about what my sobriety has been like. It's been entertaining. 
Okay? And I've had kind of a long haul in it, and I'm going to be honest with you. I am the queen of bad relationships. And uh, if you want to know what your issues are, go, go, go start dating somebody. And, uh, you know, and it talks in the, in the 11th step about trusting our intuitive, you know, and, and, and paying in absurd ways. You ever been at an AA dance and looked across the room and saw your person of the opposite sex across the room and gone, it's a God thing, right? <laughs> this is a God thing. Because you get that feeling inside and you're like, yes, this is the 11th step happening, okay? I've had an intuitive thought. And uh, my sponsor once told me that the kindest thing I ever did and the thing I did with most integrity is that I didn't take everybody that I dated home and try to marry them. Uh, I was the kind of woman that when I went out with people in sobriety, I would look at you at dinner, our first date, and wonder what our kids were going to look like. <laughs> and I didn't understand. I was twisted thinking. But I'd look at you and say, well, the cheekbones aren't quite right. You know? So I've had a lot of relationships here, and I've had a lot of living that goes on. And I believe in life on God's terms. When I had about 15 years of sobriety, um, and I'm not saying this is going to happen to you, okay? People get freaked out and go, oh, God, I hope it doesn't happen to me. Well, I hope it doesn't either. But uh, I was working with a lot of people and doing a lot of stuff and doing what I thought was right. I was very fortunate at six years of sobriety. I bought a house all by my little self. I've been single most of my, all my sobriety. I got married once for about a year. And um, <laughs> it's one of those things. And um, anyway... I had uh, been building up, you know, investments, and my finances were looking pretty good. Always had good jobs, always pretty high-functioning person. And at about 15 years of sobriety, some stuff started going awry. And it actually went awry quite a while before that, but it sort of led up to it. And uh, I had a breast cancer scare. That was pretty terrifying for those of us women who have been through this, and some men. Um, then I had a miscarriage at the age of 45, like the, that year. And I have no children, and I wanted that baby more than anything else in the whole world. You know, and I thought that it was my reward for 15 years of hard labor in AA. See, and I thought the things I accumulated were kind of rewards for all my hard service in AA. And I have taken this thing. I bought the corporate line. I do what's asked of me because I know I'm a real alcoholic. Um, and all of a sudden, I watched my financial world kind of crumbling. Um, I had bought a new business. I had decided not to be a convention planner anymore. It was too hard to travel across country. But I've always made money. And so I thought, well, I'll buy this business, and I'll just make the same kind of money. And I didn't make the same kind of money. And so my financial world started unraveling, and there was nothing I could do to fix it. I just I couldn't do it. And I was falling apart, slowly but surely. Over the course of about nine months, I had no house, no investments, no baby, no nothing, and no place to live. And a friend of mine took me in, and we put all my stuff in a 20 by 20 um, storage unit. I had to go do some business one day, and I had to go to that storage unit to find my shoes. <laughs> And I remember opening it, looking, going, where did I have all this stuff? Anyway, I had it going on. And all my friends thought I had it going on, you know, because that's what sobriety is about, right? You know, great life, great house, great money, great everything. And, uh, and I thought that I was a great believer in God. And I used to talk about prosperity thinking and abundance. And uh, I remember when I was going through this financial uh, debacle, I was terrified about money. And, and I found out that my faith was in money, property, and prestige. See, I thought it was in God. And I called on God, and I would talk about God, but when push came to shove, it was in my ability to earn a living and the money that I had in the bank, and I thought that that would always keep me safe. And I remember talking to people about being really terrified because all my money was going away, and they'd say cute things like, oh, Janice, it's only money. Don't you like that? And so I would look at them and say, okay, now if this happens to you, I want you to be sure and come to me. <laughs> 
Okay, when it happens, and I'm going to look at you and go, oh, it's only money. God has all the money. Technically, it's true, but when your whole financial world is collapsing around you, it's a little scary. I got so scared, I thought I was going to commit suicide. That's how little faith I had. I was ready to just say, forget it. See, my family, most of my family's dead. I've taken care of myself most of my life. I've been taking care of myself since I was 18. And um, everything that I had built up was crumbling for my future. Well, what has ensued is seven of the most interesting years ever. And I'll take you on a little journey with that, of what's come out of it. I ended up with nothing. Some of it was decisions based on self. Some of it was uh, uh, the gods coming together at a certain time. Life happens here. Uh, there was a lot of reasons for this happening. That's not the point. The point for me is that I didn't have a relationship with God. And I remember when all this was going on, I would say things. I would be trying to pray, and I had no faith. And the kind of voice I heard that I thought was God was saying things like, well, you know, God, you know, what did you expect, Janice? Did you think life was going to be any better than this? This is how it is for you. And I was terrified. Because, you see, this is the God that keeps me sober. And I'm thinking, if that's the God I've got, I'm in deep trouble. Okay? How could you have expected something else? So what I ended up doing is I ended up going back through the steps. Not because it was going to solve my financial situation or give me the baby or fix my job or, or give me a new place to live. But that voice I was hearing that I thought was God, that I believe keeps me sober, I thought, he ain't going to be up to the job here. And I didn't want to drink. And that's why I went through the steps again. And I want to talk about steps in a practical application. And that second step was the hardest second step I've ever taken in my entire life. You know, and when I looked at it, and, and you asked me, is God either everything or he's nothing? It's like, you've got to be kidding. And I went to my sponsor. I, was, I even went to my sponsor and said, I think I've decided I'm not an alcoholic. I was just crazy. He said, we know you're crazy, but let's talk about your alcoholism. You know, and he sat down and 12-stepped me. It was many years of sobriety. Then we took a look at that second step again. And I said, I, he said, God either is or he isn't. What's your choice? He's either everything or he's nothing. I said, I can't answer that everything, nothing question. I just can't do it. My heart's broken. Everything's been taken away from me. And I think I'm being punished. He said, well, let's answer this question. He either is or he isn't. I said, well, I know God is. And the way that I know that God is is because I see him working in everybody else's life. So I know that God exists. But do I have a God personal to me today? No. <clears throat> Not with what my life looks like. He said, well, here's the trick then. He said, if God is, you see, your questions are, is he everything or is he nothing? So if God is, he can't be nothing. Right? So it must be everything, and you just don't know what everything is yet. So I took my second step. And when I took that third step, I was scared to death. Scared to death. Turned my will and life over. I mean, like, I'm destitute. I went from rocking and rolling and helping other people to nothing. I'm going to turn my will and life over? It was terrifying. But I did it. And I wrote my inventory. And things on my inventory were things like self-reliance. Self-reliance is so important on there. Not feeling safe. We talk about writing about principles. People, institutions, and principles. Principles are old ideas. Principles are belief systems. Principles are things by which I conduct my life today that are no longer serving me. And I thought self-reliance was a good thing. You see, because I've been taking care of myself. I was independent. I didn't look to a man to pay my bills. I paid my own bills, bought my own house, and buy my own cars. Make my own investment plan. I'm, I'm independent. 
what I was was I was self-reliant and didn't know it. I didn't understand what that word meant until I had 17 years of sobriety. And I wrote that inventory on self-reliance. And I wrote about relationships that I had and being angry at AA and the things that I thought I was supposed to get here. Expectations. Sue talked about expectations. <clears throat> I cried through that entire fist step with my sponsor. And then came six and seven. Six. Am I going to ask God, what are the things that are standing in the way? What are those things? Those things that we consider objectionable. I had to completely surrender to this power ultimately so that I would not pick up a drink. And I was afraid that what that meant was being homeless. So I called my sponsor three times to negotiate my sixth step with him. You can see that, Tom, can't you? I'm negotiating, going, now wait a minute. Let's try this again. What you're saying is then what I need to be willing to give up is the idea that I may have a home <laughs> or may have a place to live on a regular basis. He said, you have to be even willing to be homeless in sobriety, Janice. He said, but why would God make you homeless? He said, where would we put your aquariums? <laughs> I mean, you can't be walking down the street with a basket and an aquarium in it. But yes, you, that's how willing you have to get. See, I make a, a list in my sixth step. I make a list of the things that I consider objectionable. And it was a terrifying journey. So I finally got on my knees and asked, said to God, I'm not willing you should have all of me, good and bad. Remove from me the things that, you know, uh, stand in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. And I got on about it. And I made my amends. And some of the amends come to find out were to me and about how I'd been living my life. I had surrounded myself with people who needed me. And the reason I had done that was because it served me. And at the time that I had this crash, everybody went away. At the time, I thought it was horrible, but it turned out to be the good news. Because, you see, I had created my entire life and my entire circle. Everybody was gone. And I was left with, God's either everything or he's nothing. I used to say that to people. God's either everything or he's nothing. Well, now I understand a little bit more about what that means. And today, seven years later, the last vacation I took was in June of 95. And when I got home, the IRS, God loved them, had cleaned out my business account and my residence account because the CPA hadn't called them to do what he agreed to do on May 22nd. I got home, I had no money. And that was the beginning of all this stuff. Well, guess what? I went on vacation this year in May of 2002, which is exactly seven years after when this whole thing started. Okay? Something I thought I wasn't going to live through. Did I drink? Did I think about drinking? No, I didn't. I really didn't. It was not on my mind. That was not my idea. Now, occasionally I thought about getting off the planet, okay? And I used to go to my sponsor and say, I'm so tired of being a poster child for Alcoholics Anonymous and going around the country and telling people how miserable your life can be and you don't take a drink. You know? Can we, like, get this to turn around a little? But you know what I've gotten? I have a God today. That, like I have a center, if any, I have a center. And my center belongs to the Creator. And I don't have much stuff anymore. I drive like a 15-year-old car. I drive a car that looks like what I drove when I was newly sober. When I'm 21 years sober. I have a small business. It's functioning. It's just enough to do my deal. Just enough. I get exactly enough. 
I live in a small apartment. It's a two-bedroom apartment. And in Denver, apartments are very expensive. Very expensive. We have one of the highest rates for mortgage things for buying houses in the country. And I pay 500 bucks a month. It's garden level. I've got my two cats and my fish. And I'm at peace. In that apartment, I slept through the night for the first time. I'd always been haunted in the middle of the night. I slept more soundly there than I ever did in that house. This may sound crazy, you know, and I'm not telling you you need to give away all your worldly goods and come out and join me, okay? <laughs> but I am telling you that through no choice, that's, okay, through what I perceived as no choice of my own, my life has changed. And today, my needs and my wants are very, very different than what they used to be. And I never thought that I could function where I am today because I had worked very hard since I was 18 to make sure that I provided for myself. And today, somehow, things just get taken care of. And I remember saying to my sponsor, I said, you know, I never would have chosen this. Who would have possibly in their right mind have chosen this path? He said, oh, but honey, you did. I said, what do you mean? He said, the very first time you took a third step. Now, does that mean that's your journey? No. That's my journey. And I can't believe I stand before you today telling you how grateful I am that I've had this journey and what the outcome of that is. So what is the purpose of all of this? The reason I work the 12 steps, we talk about being in the work. I'm doing the work, I'm doing the work, I'm doing the work, right? The work of the program is carrying the message to other alcoholics through the 12 step. The 11 steps before prepare us to do the work of this program, which is carrying the message. I'm not a pleasant sponsor. I let people know I'm not a pleasant sponsor. So, you know, that we don't fool around. But I do carry the message. I'm going to give you a little story, too. When all this was going on, I just had a miscarriage. I'd had an operation. I was feeling horrible and just so beat up by God. And the circumstances under which it happened were just, I was just devastated. And some friends and I went out to a park um, to hear some other friends of ours play drums. You know, they're drummers. And I ran into this gal I used to sponsor many years before. She was, uh, anyway... She came up to me and said, oh, Janice, my sponsor got rid of me. I'm between 8 and 9 and all that. And I, I just can't stand for people to be between 8 and 9. It just makes me nervous. And I started talking with her about it. But I had decided I wasn't going to sponsor anybody anymore. I was sick of AA. I was sick of everything. I'm losing everything. I mean, why would I want to sponsor anybody? So I said, well, honey, you need to get another sponsor. And she said, would you talk to me about 8 and 9? And I said, you know, I really just don't want to. And she said, look, I'm not going to ask you to sponsor me. Just help me with this. I said, sweetie pie, you hang out in another fellowship, and I'm not sure your 8 and 9 is going to look like my 8 and 9. And I just don't want to deal with the energy it's going to take to work on that. She said, just hear it. I'm like, oh, God. So she came over to my house. I set an appointment. She came over, and she started reading me this list. And I said, honey, where were you selfish? Where were you dishonest? And none of that was in there. I said, I can't help you. You can take this to somebody over here, and they can help you, but I can't because you have nothing here to make amends on. She said, will you help me? I said, absolutely not. I'm tired. <clears throat> I don't feel good. And I, I need to rest. And plus, she was doing some things. I don't sponsor people under those circumstances. She said, I'll quit doing them. I said, no, don't quit doing it for me. You just keep doing what you're doing. And uh, I, I just don't want to do it. Push, 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 push. She said, give me two weeks. I'll clean up what I'm doing. You'll have time to rest, and I'll come back. I was like, oh, God. Okay. You know? The reluctant servant of the Creator standing here. So she came back in two weeks. She had quit doing what she was doing, and she was ready to do the deal. She, and I, I said, okay, I'll meet with you every Tuesday. And I decided I'd just be horrible to her because then I knew one day she wouldn't come back. 
And she came every Tuesday at 4 o'clock, and I was so angry some days. I'd be lying on the couch eating Oreos with the uh, remote control, thinking about how I wanted to die and how miserable I was. And the doorbell would ring, and I would just pull that door open and look at her like I wanted to kill her. And she'd say, you're not very happy I'm here, are you? And I'd say, no, but come in. And for that hour, once a week, everything around me had changed. Everything was different because I was doing that one-on-one thing that's prescribed here. And we can't create that. It just happens in that process. And she'd go away and I'd be so miserable I'd be crying and crawling around on the floor. You want to know something? She never missed an appointment for nine months. We went through every page of the book. And she thanked me and said I saved her life. And I said, oh, honey, baby, you don't know. You saved mine. That's what happened. And she knew I hated her. She'd be there early. She never came late. I had no reason to fire her. Joe, I'd get home and I'd think, oh, good, she's not here. And she was parked across the street waiting. You know? I might be a few minutes late and she wouldn't even acknowledge it. It was just like she was the messenger from God. That's what this deal's about. But i got to know what the problem is so I can apply the solution, so I can have a God in my life who protects me from those thoughts. See, I have a new mind today. I do have a new mind. And I believe in being recovered. And it says that we're recovered on a daily basis, one day at a time, provided that we maintain our spiritual condition. I'm going to tell you right now about sponsorship. If you have a sponsor that you can't trust everything in your inventory to, everything, you get rid of them today and get a new one. If you have a sponsor... Let me do it this way. If you're not sure what you are, find an alcoholic properly armed with facts about himself that will help you find that answer within yourself. And then it says, and you can come with us on the broad highway. We talk about fellowship here. I talk about fellowship of the spirit. I do not believe that potlucks keep you sober. See, nobody ever said to me, Oh, Janice, you're going to be okay, honey. Don't worry about it. I wasn't raised with that kind of stuff. And for a real alcoholic, that's murder-suicide. Okay? Because I'm not going to be okay unless I find a solution. So to me, what is fellowship? It's great to go to potlucks, great to hang out with people, but to me, fellowship is the fellowship of the Spirit. What that means is I hang out with people who have had a common experience through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. That does not mean they've had the exact same spiritual experience, but they have had the spiritual experience. The 12 step says, having had a spiritual experience as the result of these steps. Not a result, the. That's who I hang out with, and therefore we have a fellowship because we're sharing the joy that comes from the Creator, good times or bad, through that process, and I'm protected. If you're not experiencing that, you might want to hang out in a different place. My group, I love my group. We have a focus meeting every night. Topic as a rule comes out of the first 164 pages plus the doctor's opinion. And we stick to that topic. And we talk about alcoholism. We don't talk about how the day was or my dog needed surgery. You know, we don't do it. Talk about, you know why? There's new people in that room. I was listening to Carl talk, too, about going to meetings. 
When I had about six years, I said to my sponsor, you know, I'm thinking I don't like going to these meetings anymore. He said, fine, you don't have to go. I'm like, great, I'm home free. I didn't think so. And then he says, why, why were you going, though? And I thought, I said, well, sometimes I like to go to dinner with friends and sometimes this and that, all different reasons for going to meetings. He said, well, then don't bother going anymore if that's why you're going. He said, we don't go to meetings just to have dinner with friends. We don't go to meetings to get stuff. He said, you go to meetings to give stuff. And if you're not going given, then don't bother. i got to give back what was given to me. Completely changed my mind about it. Well, he kind of set me up, though, don't you think? <laughs> 10 and 11, great steps. Please do not worry that you have to be the major yoga meditator kind of guy to reach God. Talks about prayer and meditation. Meditation is just asking for direction and trusting the intuitive that we develop over the years here in Alcoholics Anonymous to trust the intuitive that's inside of us. I used to think that I had to sit and meditate for an hour in the morning, an hour at night, and all that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. I clean my motel room when I'm traveling. Did you know that? Isn't that neat? I replace the toilet paper. I put in fresh toilet paper. I clean the sink off. I fold my towels, put them over the thing. I, pick, I clean up my coffee stains. You know why? Because it grounds me. It grounds me. Somebody else is cleaning that room. I don't leave my motel room any different than I leave my home. I'm the toilet paper changing queen around town. <laughs> Anytime I go in some place and they're out of toilet paper and there's one on the back thing, I put toilet paper in. That's my job in life. And meditation comes in a lot of different forms too. I love doing laundry. Especially towels. You know about towels? You fold them. And they smell good. And they're fresh and clean and you're focused. Dance. It's a form of meditation. People meditate when they run. You know why? Because their head got cleared and they listened. Please do not let meditation intimidate you from starting a relationship with God, which was already started by the fact that we agreed to do this process. How's my life today? It's dandy. It's just dandy. I can't believe it. Um... I have a relatively sane mind. I'm not making tons of money. And uh, I guess I'll say this publicly. It's so hard to say. But, like, I have a have a new friend in my life. Somebody's come along. And uh, I'm actually having what I would consider to be an adult relationship <laughs> for the first time. Plus, I'm too old to look at them and say, I wonder what our kids will look like. Um, so that's over. But uh, it's really neat. And, and this friend of mine called me today before I came over here and said, I just want you to know how happy I am that you're in my life. Nobody has ever said that to me. <laughs> Nobody. Okay? Because it wasn't fun having me in your life. Running my business. Life's pretty calm. I didn't do any kitty discipline or, or fishy discipline before I left town. You know, I kept my net out of the fish tank. And life is good. And I have a peace today. When I talk about feeling a center today, I didn't have that before. And I went out with a friend, and we were talking about the things I'd been through and the trauma and all that stuff. And I remember him looking at me saying, oh, my God, I hope that doesn't happen to me. I said, I hope it doesn't either. And it's not your journey, and it's not a scare story. The point of the story is that I didn't drink. There are no more excuses for drinking. I did not drink, and it did not enter my mind. And life happens here. And just wake up one day and feel okay, and everything was perfect. But I have done what's been laid out before me. And I'm kind of fun to be with. You know what I found out? I'm going to say this. 
I think I'm becoming a person that I would kind of like to hang out with. You know? And even in sobriety, there are times I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. My little friend said to me the other day, he said, I need to tell you something. He said, your mother is very, very proud of you. You know, because I think about her and how she didn't get sober. I would tell the corn story, but I've run over. Um, and, and I'll say this. I left Denver, and we have a friend who's in hospice. And um, I've become a person that can hang out in hospices. And I was a woman who couldn't go to a funeral because we'd had so many deaths in my family. I didn't go to funerals for years in sobriety. And what God's made me into is a person that likes to be around people who are transitioning out of here. I like people when they're coming in, the little binky ones, you know. They just come in in the chute, you know, about five, six pounds. I like those. They don't talk too much. And then I like them when they're getting ready to transition out. I don't do very well with the stuff in between necessarily. But God's done that. I like hanging out there and that I'm at peace. Well, you know what that tells me? Uh Uh-oh, I just got a message. I'm going to run over. Remember that voice I heard in my head that I thought was God saying stuff like, what would you expect? What I had to find out was that that wasn't God and it was the voice of my father. Can I go over a couple minutes? Am I over? Okay, I got a message. Okay. Um, what that was was a voice of my dad. And I had written inventory on my dad for close to 15 years. And I had to get rid of it because the voice of my dad was separating me from God and hanging on to my dad. And there was abuse in the background and all that kind of stuff. But I had written and written and made amends. When I did that particular inventory, I approached it like my life depended on it. And the reason I did was because it did. Because I was hearing my dad and I thought it was God. Okay? So when I wrote, I wrote inventory again about my dad. And I come from an abusive background. And what my fourth column showed up was, because I don't believe in sexual abuse, that we uh, are responsible for that. But what I found out in this inventory through the power of God in the spiritual process was that the behaviors that I was still living with today were no longer serving me as a result of what had happened to me back then. I can't change what happened, but I had to change. And the voice of my dad had to go because he still had that power. And I wrote that inventory and I got really clear on it. And I took two or three days and moved into a motel room to make my amends. Uh, Of course, I've got to do the dramatic. And um, so I moved in, but I didn't start writing out the amends until it was like three hours before checkout, uh, which is what we like to do. But anyway, I wrote this amend to my dad, and in it I heard myself saying, this is separating me. I have to set you free. I have to be free of you so God can enter my life because you're in the way. And that's what I need is God, not him. If you're interested, I will tell you, you can come see me later, the true process of that amend, but I physically set my dad free. Physically. I, had him, I was hanging on to him. Okay? And then when it was gone... I mean, I just bawled like a baby, but I got set free after 15 or 16 years writing on this. Well, what came out of that was I never had a pleasant memory about my dad or my family. I was a child who had almost no memories. And one of the great gifts that came out of that was like a year or two later, I was driving down the street or doing something, and I got this picture. I got this picture of how my dad used to take me to softball games or baseball games in El Paso over near Ascarity, whatever. There was the Sun Kings used to play. That's how old I am. And um, But we would go to those baseball games on hot summer nights and drink, you know, Coca-Cola and eat hot dogs and popcorn. And I got more pictures about how he used to take me with him on house calls when he was a young doctor late at night. I would just ride around with him when he'd go on house calls. So what the Creator did 
was all the ugliness got removed by my willingness to do this process and have a relationship with God and what came back in were all the good things. If you've written inventory on something more than once, don't worry about it. Write again. Because people will say, oh, if you haven't been done with it, then it isn't over or you didn't do it right. It's not true. But for some reason, maybe there's somebody out there who needed to hear this. I needed to share that story with you. Thank you for inviting me to Hobbs. We'll have a really good time. I'm going to go put on my jeans. And um, I'll see you at the barbecue tonight. God bless you.